0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Theology and Insanity, a weekly Catholic podcast trying to bring clarity to theology and to communicate it well to all of you and to answer questions. Um, I'm Dave Van Vickle, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Cirilla from Franciscan University. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Dave. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm I'm excited because... uh, I have a shed coming today for my gym that I'm going to put my gym oh, in, oh, and nice. I'm real excited. Yeah, my dad helped me get a shed for all my weight equipment, and I'm pretty psyched to, to get it because it's freezing here. And I, my, my, my gym right now is outside, and so it's like a carport, so it's exposed to the elements, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. kind of like Rocky-esque, right, but, right. but a little too <laughs> rocky for me. But That's great. Uh, you know, for those of you who uh, caught right away you know, our, our title for the podcast, Theology and Insanity, it's kind of a hat tip to Frank Sheed, you know, one of the great Catholic communicators. And I, I, after we uh, recorded our first episode, I saw this quote, and I just had to share it with you because it's perfect for what we're trying to do here. And it's from Frank Sheed. It says, What sort of soldier will the uninstructed Catholic make, stumbling along in the dark, not even aware that it is, it, that it is dark? half-fed, and not even hungry for more. He is in no state to show others the lights or the nourishment. Or the, or the nourishment. Only a laity living wholly in reality is equipped to show it to others and win them to want to live it too.
1: That is the Church's Warfare by Frank Sheet. I mean, that, that quote's awesome, huh? Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. Now, he uses that theme later in another book. He says, uh, you know, the truth, the truth from Christ is light and the truth is food. Nice, I
0: mean, they're interesting characters. he and his wife, huh? They um I mean, you kind of sometimes I, I stumble on books that were published by um, Sheed and Ward Publishing that I think, man, how did like yeah. he, he knew exactly what the church needed at that time, and he published
1: the right things at the right time uh, that, that were incredible. No, they were at the head of a burgeoning renewal, and they brought so many people into the church in England. It was a great Catholic revival in England. Eventually, though, Sheet and Ward Publishing got moved by the '60s or so to Georgetown University, and then some of the stuff got weird. Oh, I did, I didn't know that. But before, but this is after they were passed away, I think. Yeah, and their and his daughter was his daughter was running it, and it got. A little wacky. Okay, I had no idea. That's in, that's a good piece of... Because they moved to America,
0: right? I guess so. I don't know all the... I think they were friends with Fulton Sheen.
1: Yeah. yeah which yeah. is
0: interesting. I mean, you see some of these... Uh, I don't know, like some of these people come together, you know? It's like you'd love to be at a dinner table with them. I know. You Can know, you imagine? Them. Right. Yeah. Right, right. You know what I love about Sheed and why I'm glad we chose this title is, like, he wouldn't have thought any Catholic should be a bad theologian. Right, I mean, he thought every Catholic should, and you read theology for beginners, which I, you know, being in my work where I work at parishes, I read that book probably once a year. There's about three books in my life that I read like once a year, and uh, that's fantastic. And and that's one of them. And it, you know, it's for beginners, but it's not. I mean, it's not shallow at
1: all. No, and and it's wonderfully set up. the, The he reaches people with little to no, you know, kind of formal education and philosophy and theology and gets them from 0 to 60 i mean immediately because <clears throat> his examples are are wonderful but he doesn't sacrifice depth he goes so deep so a lot of us here at Franciscan University use that exact text uh, theology for beginners in our 101 class uh, foundations of Catholicism oh really okay it's it it is substantial it's not light um, but it's it's fairly easy to read, but then you have to. It's one of those books where you reread the sentence over and over and over yeah. again, and you go deeper and deeper, you know. Right.
0: Right, it's funny because like if I have a talk like uh, at a parish, like maybe on baptism or something, it's usually the first thing I usually turn to is that book. I'm like, okay, let's yeah. see what he says first, and yeah, yeah, and yeah, and I'll kind of temper it. But yeah, so last week we talked about uh, last week was awesome. I loved hearing your it story was, and thank everything. Thank Yeah, yeah, that was great. And we talked about like what theology is, and and we talked a lot about actually like how universities kind of are supposed to be doing theology, and supposed to support theology, and I think like one of the issues, you know, that we kind of came to the conclusion of is like, yeah, it's, it's a science like St. Thomas calls it a science, not like other sciences, right? But we're treating it that way, unfortunately, where there's kind of like this idea that like, look, you can just say whatever you want and call it theology, right? And not this idea of like doing theology with the church. It's more like I'm going to do theology and I'm going to pull things to try to proof text my theology. And it's created what I would consider, especially amongst the lay faithful, like the people that I work with a very serious crisis of, um, of ambiguity, I think, in certain moral
1: truths and certain dogmatic truths in the Church. No no doubt. Uh, it is a crisis of ambiguity. Before we plunge into that, back up just for a second um, and think about this. You, you nailed it, Dave. They're doing theology... Uh, uh, Apart from or severed from the moorings in the church, right? The church magisterium and the church's authority. We want to be independent and creative. We can't be biased and have an outside, uh, non expert group of people telling us what we can and can't think, say, and write, okay? That's the magisterium. So they have the Declaration of Independence, the uh, Lando Lakes statement we talked about last week, uh, declaring independence of Catholic theologians in the United States from the magisterium. But Severing from the church is severing from Christ. Christ dwells in his church and he lives and moves through the church and he lives and moves and teaches through the magisterium. So severing from that is severing not just from an institution, not just from a hierarchy, but it's severing from Jesus Christ himself. Not that every single thing a member of a magisterium does is is Christ-like or in union with Christ, but he does work through them. That's his choice and as he works through the rest of us schlubs, okay? But you se- that's so dangerous. So yes, the ambiguity is an important focus, but that ambiguity is in the context of a movement where a whole bunch of Catholic theologians have severed themselves from the Church and therefore the, the guidance of Christ. Let me let me ask you this, okay, because this is, this is what um, is coming across for me
0: in, in a lot of cases. It doesn't seem like they're severing se- themselves just from the content, just from the deposit of faith, it seems like they're severing themselves from the method and i think in a lot of ways like even though there's no like exact teaching on this is how you should teach the faith i feel like that's almost as problematic because for instance like there are things that i might i might speculate about in theology but i wouldn't teach them at a parish until i know that I'm thinking with the church on that. But it seems like anyone who has a Twitter account now and calls himself a theologian can just throw out whatever they want. Like for instance, I don't know if you read the latest tweet by Father James Martin, right, where he calls God a she. Yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't read it, but I'm not surprised. It's
0: it's like it's like to to do something like it's like throwing a grenade and walking away. Right. Because and and it it's clearly just a it, he didn't defend it, he didn't write about it, or anything like that. It's just, right. it. the method is what bugs me in a lot of ways
1: right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, the method, you know, for any legit theologian has always been, you look at God's revelation, God's Word, Scripture, sacred tradition, and then you look at how... The church has explained that officially through the magisterium. And then you look at great examples of theologians on the topic you're investigating and bad examples of people who have fallen into error on that topic, right? And then you conduct your theology, as we said last week, to seek to understand what you already first accept because you've been evangelized and you have faith. Yeah. So uh, I don't think, you know, I gotta be careful here uh, and accurate, truthful. I, I, I'm not convinced that the people we're talking about in general, we didn't mention specific names, but we could say Hans Kung, for example, or somebody like right. that, is consciously thinking, I want to cut myself off from Jesus Christ. You know, I don't think they're thinking that. Um, what they're doing, I think, Dave, you, you nailed it again, is they're, they want a different method. So yeah. the, it's subtle, though, because they will look at scripture, they will look at magisterial teachings, and they will They will play with it. They will say, well, there's a different way to look at it. And so they get to that boundary between where the mystery lies and where error is, okay? And they they often dance right on that line. Karl Rahner was excellent at dancing right on that line.
0: Yeah, so that's a great point. And bringing up Karl Rahner, I think, is in particular interesting, right? Because isn't he where the phrase the spirit of Vatican II originated
1: from? He's one of them. I don't know who originated it, but he's part of that group who talked about the spirit as opposed to, well, the letter seems to be saying this, but what we really meant, because I was there and I helped compose some of the documents, what we really meant was something else, you know? Okay. Let's like give him fair due.
0: So, like, because yeah. in some cases, that is correct. I mean, in some cases, like, being there helps us to understand what they meant by,
1: right? I mean, it, I mean, it, well, you, well, you well, would no, want to no know. Doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of octa. ACTA are the uh, acts of the council comp- uh, written down by secretaries who are kind of like court reporters. And there's 26 huge folio size volumes of the octa or thereabouts, uh, octa of Vatican II, uh, writing down all the details of what happened. So, yeah, the octa are very revealing, but you, you can't just go, like, with one guy. Um, right, right. Now, now, the thing is, I... I, I Again, have to be careful and and accurate here. Um, We'd want to if we really want to hammer that, we'd have to pick out a specific claim, you know, by a specific uh, thinker, and then analyze that. Because it's always, once you do that, it's always much more nuanced and and actually more complicated and more difficult and subtle. And in some ways, because of that, when it's wrong, it's more dangerous. Right, right. It seemed
0: to be. It seemed to be that that at that time. To, I mean, from what I understand, like, okay, so some of my favorite theologians. Are are that like are the council fathers okay like yeah yeah pe- like guys who made me realize that Catholicism was different than just Christian like just normal general Christianity right that those were council fathers and like when I read about them it's funny it's almost scandalizing because a lot of them had issues with the pope before. They became the the big dogs, like make, calling shots at the council and, and the main theologians. Like, like, De Lubac... These
1: are the parity. Yeah, these are the yeah, parity. Right. Not the the fathers would be the bishops, but yeah, I know oh, okay, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Good, good. I'm glad you said that. But it's true for some of the bishops, too. It's true for some of them, like, Flings.
0: Like, right, okay. So, like, De Lubach, uh, yeah. uh, you know, like these guys, like, I, um, Boyer, all those guys, but De Lubach, he, he ran into some troubles, but like, I, like, his theology to me is like I I love I mean I love it and it to me is a faithful he's a faithful son of the church right I mean so it's it is something that you have to continually do right I mean you have to continually look at am I in the right place am I thinking with the church on this am I in continuity with the magisterium and there there for a, for a professional theologian or like in this case like you know the parody or, 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 or is that how you say it? parody
1: yeah. That just means experts. A peritus is an expert, and periti are experts. Yeah,
0: like for them, like they, their job kind of is to, um, you know, try to try to you know put their laser focus on the church's teaching and communicate it in a new and deeper
1: way, maybe. So they are they could run into problems and still be faithful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, I don't know if you want to get into this now or later or ever. But there is a pretty well-defined and kind of his established historical record about the different kind of groups of theologians at the council um, and, and what happened in that context. And it does kind of set up a historical context of the, both the beauty and sometimes the ambiguity, which is, I think, rarer than people may think, of the documents of Vatican II um, and the fruits that can come from it.
0: For instance, I like. I just finished reading Eve Eve Congar's Journal of the Council. Oh, <laughs>
1: he's a little he's a little rough sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a pretty exhilarating read. I mean, yeah, there, yeah, was yeah. Some, there was some there were some battles in that. And, there and were everything.
1: it was painful, and it's it's the sausage making that's kind of yeah, right. ugly sometimes. To be honest, right? I mean, look, there is a a well established kind of um, more or less scholastic neo scholastic school. A lot of them Thomists, but not all Thomists, but mostly Thomists who were on the Preparatory Theological Commission. Uh, people like Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, uh, people like that. So they were um, creating scho- documents of a scholastic, you know this probably from from being at Steubenville and hearing this you know, in class, but they were developing more scholastic draft documents for the council. Um, and you're right, prior to the council, Karl Rahner was silenced and disciplined, so was de Lubach, a few of those other folks uh, Yves Congar, I think, also was, too. Yeah. Um, and then um, at, at the kind of 11th hour in the preparatory phase for the council, a number of these guys were let in as parity, as experts. Uh, some, And the way that happens is a bishop says, look, I want these guys to be my experts, right? Now, you can have a peritus, an expert, uh, with a bishop, but then a higher level than that would be being brought into the Preparatory Theological Commission to prepare the documents. So some of them were brought in at the 11th hour. They didn't have a lot of influence yet. And then there was a revolution on the floor of the council when it first uh, was opened. And that revolution was, and Ratzinger had a lot to do with this, uh, that they wanted to, basically they voted to throw out, there was a revolution to throw out all these 72 drafts, schema, uh, uh, and and replace them with with new drafts that would more be more allegedly more representative of the body of bishops because uh, they weren't involved the worldwide bishops in the drafting of the schema right huh. so it was a great revolution and the, and this sets up uh, a huge set of debates in the church ever since like was this right. a good thing was this a bad thing was this a rupture right you have the the theology of rupture uh, certain super liberals. Think that's great because before Vatican II the church was rotten. Uh, certain conservatives, like uh, or maybe not conservative, but you know, radical, like Society of Saint Pius X, will say this was uh, a rupture, but it was bad. Everything right. before the council was good, and the council and beyond was bad. Others are continuity, right? And that's yeah. Rod Singer uh, and and JP two and, and a bunch of us at Steubenville. Um, without but. But with even within that group, we see a, a spectrum, right? Some of us see well. There are some elements that are really in tension so much so it's hard to see continuity. Right. But in any event, that group who helped to bring this in does have theologians, as you say, like De Lubac, right? But among that group, during but especially after the council, there was a there was a fracture. Right. You you have people like Hans Küng going off the rails saying very explicitly writing books saying papal infallibility is not revealed doctrine this is it's this gone, is a right? heresy yeah he had a book called infallibility question mark and his answer was no and and so you know of course he was punished but not with excommunication he was just denied uh any teaching uh, the permission to teach in any catholic university on the planet and then of course that he went on to become a famous worldwide speaker worldwide famous speaker but in any event there was this fracture so people like von balthasar and de lubach and ratzinger said whoa we don't want to go that direction so the two groups right well now you have three you have the traditional kind of scholastic thomist like people then you have this nouvelle theologie people de lubach von balthasar ratzinger and they formed a journal called communio right i love it.
0: this is exciting
1: yeah you have you have uh, yeah then you have these dis- more dissent folks leaning towards dissent or actually going over into dissent like Skillebeck's Rahner, uh, hans Kung, and they form a journal called concilium right so concilium is the it means council communio means communion right and then there's then there's nova et vetera new things and old which is a journal founded by the more scholastic uh, Thomistic types like uh, cardinal charles Gernet and others by the way uh, Novit Vetter is now published by F- uh, Scott Huns uh, St. Paul Center, right? I Francis saw that University St. Stum- yeah, yeah. I was so. looking for a copy last night on his website. The so so
0: w- interestingly, um, you know, so, some of these guys, but there, wasn't there also a split like amongst the conservatives? Because it, what's weird is that like um, Lefebvre signed, he signed Sacros Sanctum uh, Concilium, yeah. and right. and then later on. So so what happened there?
1: I I mean we're <laughs> getting a little bit off topic, but I'm, no, I'm curious it, it, as yeah. to Well it's 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 difficult and sad. Uh but no, he, he he signed all the documents. Um what what happened was uh if you've read all sixteen I I've read and taught all sixteen documents for years right. of Vatican II. And um they're wonderful. Um but there are problems in some of them, difficulties, uh challenges. But as a council father, things were happening so rapidly. There was a real revolution that went on at the council, and the revolution was largely spearheaded by the Nouvelle Théologie and the Concilium people. Um, some of them were pushing for this revolution for good renewal purposes, right. and others for, uh, well, maybe they also conceived it as a renewal, but really a rupture, a break from Vatican I and Trent and you know all that.
0: So, so wait, so, okay, can I stop you? Sorry, yeah, 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 I, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I, no, I want to yeah. clarify it. So... so the the ones who were pushing for the kind of the re- revolution in a good sense, the their big thing was look. Um, I mean, this is this is the era of the the sacred monster of Thomism. That's uh, right, F- Father yeah. Guillaume Lagrange. Right there, but their argument was like, look, w- there's more th- there's more theology than just Thomism. Like, let, let's go back to the fathers. That's right. That's I mean, right. Is that that's is right. that essentially what they're. Oh yeah,
1: that's right. And I, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. Because if you read De Lubac, his his theological writings are just that. He's, he's Tom, looking. He goes scripture. Well, he's a Thomist, but he but he pulls from scripture and the fathers before he gets into the medieval scholastics. Wait, you said you said De Lubac. You meant oh, father. I meant you, I meant Lagrange. Yeah, Lagrange. Okay. okay yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank good. you. Yes. Okay. I'm, so I'm not sure that's an entirely fair critique of Garagu, but that is exactly the critique. And 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 they wanted more than Thomism. Yes, they did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And some great riches came out of that. So de Lubac will excuse me. I said it again. Garrigou-Lagrange, yes, he appeals to the fathers of the church, but he doesn't do quite the, the as thorough and deep a recovery of them as de Lubac and von Balthasar attempt to do. Now, there's a lot of ways to critique. I'm a, just just to get the cards on the table. I'm a Thomist right. in more of that old school sense, right? But right. I do appreciate what the Nouvelle people did or attempted to do. But it's not without. Um, criticism.
0: So so let me push back on on it
1: yeah, on, yeah. a little bit. So so um
0: to me what it seems like when I read Gergu Lagrange and like he's usually like the first source I go to for any topic. Yeah yeah. Because it's cuz he thinks Thomistic like uh, you know I mean it's just it's you know how it is like you it, it Thomas to me was kind of like you read him and you're so confused and then you read him again and you kind of see something there, but you don't really understand it yet. And then you read him again, and you understand it. And then you're addicted to Thomism, like basically, <laughs> like just his method and everything like that. Right. But it seemed to me like with Guerlou Lagrange um, that it was like he used the Fathers and the Scriptures, in my opinion, okay, to prove Thomism. Whereas de Lubac, you when you read de Lubac, you could go right back to like Origin, or you could go back to like. Irenaeus, or some of those, and like the sentences are almost identical in the way it's presented, in the way it, in the spirit of it, kind of the tone, even in a sense. Or, or am I wrong?
1: No, tell me more about what you mean. The sentences are identical.
0: Yeah, like I mean, you, you read De Lubac, it, it's he, it, it's like he was formed by the fathers and speaks in continuity with them. Yeah, yeah. With Father Guigal Lagrange, it seems more like he, he's clearly. St. Thomas, and he uses the fathers to prove St. Thomas. As okay, a...
1: so it seems that way, but here's what here's what's going on, kind of historically in the okay. history of what of how Scholasticism developed, and it's not just Thomism, but it's it's the Franciscan schools and and the Carmelite schools of Thomas and the Jesuit schools. Um, so in the medieval period, it, you guys probably know this. You probably know this, Dave. Uh, the 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 master those who are aspiring to be masters. Uh, they produced what's the equivalent of a doctoral dissertation today on Peter Lombard's sentences. So Peter Lombard was a bishop of Paris in the 12th century and composed a very important work called The Sentences or The Opinions. And it's really The Sentences or Opinions of the Fathers of the Church, right? So it's, it's theology from the Trinity, creation, the fall, the incarnation, Our Lady, the establishment of the Church, the sacraments, uh, the moral life, uh, the four last things, okay? All of that uh, guided by the interpretation of the fathers of the church, okay? So this okay. was read along, side by side with the Glossa Ordinaria, which is the commentary of the fathers of the church on um, scripture, line by line, okay? This is before Thomism, okay? And then Thomas and Bonaventure and Albert the Great and Scotus and all these guys wrote their quote-unquote doctoral dissertation on this collection of sentences. So these guys are steeped in the fathers of the church and... and um, in my formation and then last 20 years of teaching and, and researching and publishing as a theologian, I'm finding Thomas, and many Thomas find this, to be more unoriginal than you may have thought initially. Because what he's doing, he's more, in many ways, he's more of just a faithful repository and synthesizer of the teachings of Scripture and the fathers on Scripture and the church uh, defining doctrines. Um, interpreting scripture okay. and then there's a few places where he uh, has a deeper insight that's brought up and used in, later after his death by Trent and other pl- you know other places so then there begins this whole tradition of a commentatorial tradition on this collection of sentences A Jesuit one a carmelite one right. a dominican one okay. okay so what these guys what the, what Geragou would think he was doing. I'm pretty sure if, if he was here with if he were here with us. That would be awesome. It, seem, it seems, Garrigou like what you're doing is just using Scripture and the Father's proof texting to defend Thomism. He'd say, well, Thomism really is uh, an attempt to preserve what Scripture and Fathers and Traditions say. So he would say, I don't know about, there's some Thomistic end that I'm using these things to prove, but rather that we're in a stream and that stream involves scripture tradition and so t- now okay. he may be wrong he may be wrong but what he would think he's doing probably is that you know no no i'm just in that stream i'm not i'm not you know you but look some of the criticisms would be like there's all sorts of writings of the fathers that aren't being looked at in the seminary system in the 20th century there was very uh, the, the patristic offerings were much smaller um, okay. and they were filtered absolutely through the lens of scholasticism absol- and Thomism, absolutely. So yes, no, this was a movement for, for good or ill, or it's mixed bag or whatever, however you want to assess it, that really did recover a whole lot that hadn't been in common uh, currency or parlance in theological studies. Okay, so that that clears up a lot for me, big time.
0: And I guess like if I had to, I mean, nobody cares about my opinion, but but I guess if I had to like I give an day. opinion, I, yeah. Well, thank <laughs> you, Mike. Uh, but if I had to give an opinion, like I love reading. I mean, you know, I love von Balthazar. We've had many discussions about yeah, this, yeah, and, yeah. and I love De Lubac, and I love these guys. But if I'm running a seminary, I'm I am commanding Thomistic. <laughs> like the Thomistic <laughs> school of thought, because I think I, like we talked about the method matters yeah. almost as much as the content. And I think the method is so important. It's it's kind of like when people talk about uh, classical music in a sense, right? That classical music has like, if you listen to it over time has a way of organizing your mind. To me, that is what St. Thomas did for me is that it's not, I don't even know if I learned new things from him, but I learned how to think in the right flow and rhythm and to start with first things and then move on to second print things. And and it seemed like it I don't know. So that I guess if I were a bishop, I would be commanding Thomism in my seminary
1: for sure. No, that's great. And had did you have this experience of of when you get into classical music, if you have a little formation in it, I have a little I have some formation in it, then for for me I can enjoy rock, folk, other styles right. of music much more deeply. I hear, oh, this is what they're doing. My goodness, sure, I see yeah. some brilliant uh, musical moves in, in other genres, and I appreciate them so much more deeply. Okay, so we have, so, so to frame our discussion, right, because we got, we got
0: into deep Vatican yep. II history, which I love. I totally nerd out on that. Um, but to, to, to move forward to today. So, so at this time during Vatican II, I'll tell you a little story of a close friend of mine who's a Jesuit um, I wasn't around, obviously. Okay, I'm, I'm I'm younger than that, but but my close friend who was a Jesuit, he was 16 when he entered the Jesuits, and the council was going on, and this is what he told me. He, he said, um, and he's a brilliant theologian, um, and also completely insane. But but uh, that that uh, other than that, he's, he's <laughs> in great. the good sense, right? In a good sense, yeah. Um, but he at the time said that during the council, and I think it was the post meetings of the council, I don't think it was actually during the, the the big meetings, um, that there would be letters sent to like his, I don't know how do you call them provinces for Jesuits. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. where they said in anticipation of changes coming to the mass, we will start them now. And so for instance, one of those changes he said to me was they were going to use a loaf of honey yeast bread or honey bread. To consecrate instead of a host, okay, and and he said at the time that it was an official letter. Well, at, least, came, at least it wasn't
1: pizza or cookies, right, which right, happened. Right. Did actually Happ- happen in some actually places, happened.
0: Right, yeah. right? Right. So 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 what he said at the time is he wondered, well, is there still a place for me in the Jesuits? And went hmm. to speak to uh, whoever his provincial or something. And literally at mass, they would have a loaf of honey bread, and then they would have one host for him. Wow. So, so, so like they accommodated him. But, yeah, anyways, yeah, 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 yeah. that is a indicative of so, whatever happened at the council, major problems happened after. After, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and, and my issue with today is this, okay? Those major problems created a culture in which it is not okay to speak ambiguously anymore. And I almost would prefer. I almost would prefer a Kung to a Martin because I don't like the mm, ambiguity. Mm, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reading um, Walker Percy, Thanatos Syndrome right now, mm, and there's mm-hmm. this one, there's this one scene where he's talking to this priest who's kind of gone insane, and and the priest is talking just rapidly, and and he's he's gone crazy, and and at one point the priest starts to accuse him of something, and and the 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 character, the main character of the book, says feeling better about being on the footing of open hostility. That's the way I feel right now. I want open hostility. Let's get the
1: masks off, the gloves off. Let's do it directly. Yeah. And and so I... Although have that a... wasn't... Kung. Kung was more stealth, bummer. Okay, Although no, right. no, Kung, no, Kung was pretty direct. The other guys were more stealth. Like right, Ronner. Ronner very yeah, stealth. Right, yeah, right. right. And yeah. Ronner's still slipping
0: in. I mean, he's yeah, still yeah. sneaking into...
1: Yeah, conversations
0: and theology. All oh yeah, the time, right? oh yeah. Uh, but 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 my point is like there. I, I say this all the time, and people criticize me. Like with the current pontificate, even okay. And I and I don't want to. I'm not here to make people mad. I just want to say this is my opinion. You know, cancel me if you want. Right. I always say about Pope Francis, as an evangelist, he thrills me. He really does because he speaks in a way that is totally different. Right. I remember the first time he spoke to the to the Curia, right? He said, if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping Satan, right? I remember thinking like, oh my goodness, what a strange, frank statement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, he thrills me as an evangelist, but he horrifies me as a catechist because it's like anytime he gets around a microphone, he says things that create ambiguity. And at some point in the church, maybe that's a possibility of being received in a more healthy way, but we're nowhere near that right now. Like the people don't know the faith, Right. and so I I don't like the ambiguity that we're seeing right now, and and it comes from not just not just that example of the Holy Father, but like from from bishops, from famous Catholics like Father Martin, who have no reason to be teaching authoritatively the way people are using him as an authority, right? Right. So, anyways, that's my yeah.
1: Well, listen, ambiguity is an interesting question. It's something I've thought about for a very long time, and I'm still thinking about it. And I'm I'm supposed to be finishing a book that includes a treatment of it. Um, I say supposed to because there's so many things going on right Right. now in my life. But uh, ambiguity uh, sometimes is okay, and sometimes it's necessary. Other times you must not be ambiguous. So what's the principle for that? There's several principles in play. For example, um, if there's a matter of faith that's not decided yet, there's a question about something. For example, at Trent, there was a question about whether some of the Word of God is in Scripture and some of it's in tradition that's not in Scripture, okay? And then some would say, yeah, that's the case. And others, at Trent, we're talking about 16th century, said, no, all of it's in Scripture. And then tradition sometimes explains it or or elaborates upon it, but there's nothing um, about the Word of God that's not already in Scripture, okay? It's the question of the material sufficiency of Scripture is the technical term. And Trent... um, decided not to settle the question.
0: Okay, So the okay. way
1: Trent put it officially in the document is a little ambiguous. Trent says this, that uh, the Word of God is in both Scripture and tradition. Okay. But that doesn't say whether or not... Some of it's in Scripture and some is in tradition. An initial right. draft that didn't make it. Initial draft document. See, every, a lot of councils have draft documents and they get changed and whatever. That One of the initial drafts of that document from Trent says... The Word of God is partim, partim, partly in Scripture and partly in tradition. That settles Uh the question, but Uh they weren't prepared to do that. So they were ambiguous, and that is appropriate and arguably necessary, because if you're not sure, because the Holy Spirit's gift of infallibility works through our reason, not apart from our reason. So in your mind and in your prayerful uh, discussions with your brother bishops and parity, there's not a clear consensus here. Nobody's convincing anyone. You just say, well, let's just keep it ambiguous. It's not ready to be settled yet. That's how it worked. So that's good. That's good ambiguity. But bad ambiguity, you already indicated, Dave, what it is. It's when something is already clearly taught. Jesus Christ is God, the Son, okay? It's not okay to fudge on that, like, uh, God bless him, but... um, uh, Father Roger Haight, a Jesuit who wrote Jesus, Symbol of God, no, which is a wild book. I, I talk about the book, book all the time. Right? Yeah, yeah. And he's very ambiguous at best on Jesus's divinity. He says, Jesus is he in whom God dwelt. What is that? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's not yeah. the traditional way of saying it. It's ambiguous. The CDF called him to task for it. And that—that that is, so there's a. Th- We can talk about this more some other time, perhaps. There are a set of theological censures, which parallel a bunch of juridical, canonical censures, like like heresy or dangerous to the faith, things like that. One of the censures is called ambiguosa. Being ambiguous sometimes is sinful, when I'm not accusing the Pope of sin here, but I'm just saying, although he could be a sinner on this account, but it's not my business, and I don't have to worry about it. Right, it's but, a well but, grade. <laughs> but, but but sometimes you must not. You would tell this to catechists. Look, uh, if your students are curious about the divinity of Christ, uh, don't be ambiguous about it. That's wrong. Right. Or contraception right. or divorce. Divorce. Well, well, you made yeah. a jump there. You made a jump
0: there because I think I understood the ambiguity argument. With Council of Trent and, and Scripture and tradition, but with moral things, I I can't think of a situation where ambiguity works with moral situations.
1: Well, it's different, yeah. But for example, um, when you have language like that's in the subjunctive grammatically, like perhaps or maybe, okay, 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 okay. Uh, and you have that when there were questions, I'm I'm not. I'm not principally a moral theologian, though I do teach moral theology, uh, so I may get some of the examples wrong. But there are issues about um, hysterectomy because of multiple C sections that okay, the Holy okay. Office, which became the CDF, were were a little ambiguous about until finally in like the 1990s, under Rotzinger, they they settled the issue. Um, okay. I think that I think frozen embryo adoption. Is also right. one of those issues that the CDF initially was kind of like. Well, it it se- for now we're not sure. It seems like we should do this, but wait to you know we have to think it through more. You know there there are, there yeah. are statements like that that you could say they're ambiguous or they're just saying look hold hold on we're gonna we're gonna look into this. It's yeah. complicated.
0: You, you, know? you know you know what I'm thinking about uh, re- really what I'm leading to here and is that you know the word pastoral has been abused deeply oh, that yeah, I think yeah. I think that. That one of the principles we have to stand on is that truth is the most pastoral thing
1: uh, Amen, you know? brother Amen I,
0: I, yeah, I just think like it's being wrecked right now because a lot well, of back documents up. what's the have, problem yeah, that, yeah. What,
1: what's the problem with using pastoral poorly? How is it used uh, problematically
0: okay, so so an official document comes out yeah. from the church, yep, and there's a moral question in that document and and then they say, "Well, it's difficult to, to make a universal out of this. Right? What yeah. we need to do is treat it pastorally. Right? Well, well, that's ridiculous. It's we've always treated things pastorally, and truth is the most pastoral thing. Right? Right. So, so it it harms the rest of us. Uh, anyways, yeah, no, pastoral it, so is
1: used. Pastoral is misused to say, "Look, that's doctrinal and that's dogmatic. That's not pastoral. As if dogma and doctrine and truth." Okay, it, right. it, it, it's not going to uh, uh, heal or help people grow, uh, yeah. which is unbelievable because it's the truth of Christ that is. Mo- you said it; it's most pastoral.
0: Right. So, I'll give you an example. So, my confirmation teacher was a religious sister, and said to me, "So I'm six. I'm 15, or I don't know, 14 at the time. So you can imagine what a 14, 15 year old kid struggles with, right?" said to me that uh, you know explained to me the whole idea of like habitual sin, addic- addictions and free will, okay, and said that, look, if you're in mortal sin but you're addicted to it, like you, like I would never not receive communion because that's when I need it the most. Well, here's the problem with that. Right? That she was trying to be pastoral, it, it, even right, even if right. she was trying to be, even if it, there is an authentic way to say that pastorally, that wasn't it. Okay, but right. she was trying to be pastoral. But for a 15 year old kid, that is license to mortal sin and then receive communion anytime you want to, because and, and avoid just,
1: confession because it's uncomfortable and, it. and humiliating and whatever. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, right. right. Yeah, so, yeah. so to me, what we're doing even though we're not saying explicitly like that, we're doing that on a global scale right now by not... I mean, you, you've seen it in the last in the last election. It was hard for a bishop to say what, what was evil and what wasn't.
1: Like that's ridiculous, right, you know. Right, right. If a bishop can't tell you that, then I have no use for them at all. Well, how, how about the it on the family in 2015? Cardinal Casper kept saying things, and in fact, his whole book, right, his right. whole book on the gospel, which is really sad and very Lutheran in a bad sense, Lutheran. Um, uh, say why in a second, but his whole point is. Um, Well, you know, the teaching, the truth, right? The doctrine, he doesn't say truth, but the teaching is that, you know, when a man joins a woman, they become one flesh and let no man separate what God has joined. That's Jesus's teaching. But pastorally, you know, people can't always do that. They can't always control themselves. Uh, And so sometimes they just need to separate. Now, sometimes people need to separate. There could be reasons for that. But he's talking about divorce and remarriage, Right. and remarriage. And this is the whole prep for the, for the council. Um, and that's okay. We have to support them pastorally. Yes, we do. But the forces, some forces behind in that argument in 2015 were supporting them pastorally means, and this is not exactly what ended up happening, Okay, but what ended up happening was a little ambiguous. Right. But some of the forces were very unambiguous, saying well, we just need to get them to receive communion. They don't have to regularize anything in to respect to their divorce and remarriage. So, and the whole point there, too, I think, was, at least a big part of it, here's the truth about marriage and reception of this Eucharist, but pastorally, we have to do something. Uh, some of these guys were saying contrary, frankly, to what the, right. what the truth is.
0: The, well, well the, uh, that whole thing with, with Cass, Cardinal Casper, you know, it didn't just make life hard for faithful theologians. It really, I mean, if anything... It was much easier on guys like you than it was on me because I was the one at oh I mean, you had to explain we, right oh, and and it's yeah, it we live yeah. in a social media era, yeah where you know I mean Trent no one knew about it for fifty years you right know what I mean right, you right. know now we live they say it in one meeting casper's secretary goes out and tweets it and and my parishioners are wondering, hey, can I can I do this? You know, and right, right, right. and I had I have very very close friends who would have no problem with me sharing this story, but they were they were divorced and remarried, and for, they they refrained from communion for thirty eight years, wow. and had their marriage blessed after after being evangelized. Really, I mean, they went to church, but they were cultural Catholics, not not really evangelized at all. After being evangelized, they they decided, okay, this is crazy. We, we can't not receive Jesus anymore. Let's, let's go back and see if we can get an annulment. Got an annulment and then finally received communion. This is happening at the exact same time of that, all those statements by Cardinal Casper. It was rough and
1: brutal. Right. And so what, what this represents in some ways, I was at a wonderful conference of uh, kind of Orthodox, faithful theologians and philosophers a few years ago, just a couple years ago, and a high-ranking prelate from the Vatican in one of the Dicasteries, was giving the homily during a mass for the conference, um, and in that homily he we were, he was talking about the four marks of the church, one holy, catholic, and apostolic. And these marks are ways, just like the moon reflects the sun's light to the earth, the church reflects the light of Christ through these four marks: the unity, right, the catholicity, the apostolicity, right, um, and the holiness of the Lord. Uh, but these marks, like the like the moon, it's getting eclipsed these days sometimes by members of the magisterium and what's going on and the confusion and the ambiguity. So that's the insanity. Um, that's one very painful part of insanity that we can, we're, we, I guess we are talking about right now. It's, we, it's sometimes within yeah. the members of the church. We first, of course, I think, want to insist that we have to look at ourselves first. Our first task is for, me, for us, we if we have sin, is to repent of the sin and to stop sinning by his grace and the power of his cross, to stop sinning and to get closer to it. That's the first order, is not to point the finger, okay, no, at others. I, I, but, no, No, I'm not chiding you, Dave, but I'm just yeah, saying, yeah. I, I'm saying that to myself. Mike, you gotta do this. You know? yeah. but, but people in our position, though, Dave, uh, we teach the faith in different modes, um, and we owe it to our students, or our cat, uh, catechumens, you know, um, uh, that <clears throat> we have to help clarify unclear things the best we can and sometimes that means contradicting or correcting an error sometimes even it, it, they're expressed by a prelate a bishop okay right. and that's that's where we get uh, into a huge can of worms that uh, I think we you know it'd be good to talk about it to some to some degree
0: yeah i think so too and i think again we we're not living in like the seventies where or eighties really where there are dissident theologians and bishops just everywhere saying all kinds of crazy things. It's more even the method right now that I think is an issue that I, I feel like if bishops took up the teaching office of, of, you know, their apostolic call more seriously, I think that we would all be in a better position right now.
1: Well, you know, you do have things. So, uh, Walter Casper, I think the book is called The Gospel of the Family. He wrote that right around the time of the Synod. And so this is a bishop exercising, in a sense, a teaching attempt. Uh, Though I don't think the book, and it's not magisterial official, right? So it's not something that we are bound to adhere to. And yet he's a bishop publicly making these claims and they're very Lutheran in nature. In other words, he'll say the ideal of sexual purity yeah, right. <laughs> that the church has established, and really frankly, it's Jesus who's established it and yeah. the church is just being faithful to it, is impossible for some or maybe many people to adhere to. But the gospel, here's the Lutheran, bad Lutheran part of it, the gospel, the good news is you don't have to. You don't have to. You can be divorced, remarried uh, in a state of sin. We used to call that living in sin and uh, receive communion. You don't have to go to confession, regularize your marriage or anything, go through what your friends, all the suffering your friends had to go through, the courage that they had to get from Christ's grace to do this. God bless them for it. That was all useless. Right? No, we have to say, with due respect, Cardinal Casper, it seems like you're mistaken here, you know? And so, so, but it's, it's uh, fearful sometimes for teachers uh, of theology, perhaps catechists as well, evangelists, to say, you know, that the bishop seems mistaken. And you have to be very slow and cautious to say that, and maybe even avoid it when you can. But if you get forced to deal with it, sometimes you might have to say that. Um, what are the principles by which you can determine this it's 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 uh there's a couple of extremes right there's a, one extreme that people will call magisterial or papal positivism right the idea that whatever a bishop or pope says is always right and you have to assent to all of it right um, and on the other hand uh, there's a, another extreme that says well you just use your private judgment that's a more Protestant uh, in a bad sense again. There's a lot of good things too about Protestants, but that's <laughs> a bad Protestant attitude of I'm my own personal magisterium. Where is that proper stance of a Catholic is a good and important question these days because of the confusion that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, I think this was, a,
0: this was a good discussion because it gave like a... His, for, at least for me, it really cleared up a lot of historical context for kind of the situation that we're in right now, which... You know, I I don't want to be a downer. I, I'm not trying to be a downer. I I think that there are a lot of good things happening too. But I do think that we're in a an age of problematic communication of the clear church teaching. And so I think that that's why, I mean, really why I was excited to start this podcast with you. you know? Yeah. No, that's good. Well, we'll come back next week, and we'll have another riveting discussion for you. And uh, I hope you learned a lot from this. Again, this has been Theology and Insanity. Please pray for us, and we'll be praying for you. God bless you all. God bless you guys.